You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and thanks for joining our weekly podcast. This is Energy Insiders and my name is Giles Parkinson, joined as usual by David Leach, ITK analyst and Renew Economy contributor. David, how are you? I'm well, thanks Giles, and I trust all our listeners are equally well listening to this podcast and uh, welcome today to our special guest. Yes, and our special guest is um, Andrew Richards. He's the CEO of the Energy Users um, Association of Australia. Andrew, um, thanks for joining us. Uh, Giles, David, thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, look, um, interesting switch for you. Actually, you um, you came from um, you came from the uh, the wind and solar industry. You're formerly at Pack Hydro and um, worked in Canberra a lot for them. Sort of had a bit of a deep insight into how the policy and the politics works on on energy, and um, now you're representing the consumers. Well, the big consumers, particularly the, the big consumers, correct? It, uh, it's a majority of our members are, uh, have energy bills in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's a, it's the energy crisis that's afflicting everybody is is really biting home with my members. But yeah, an interesting career change, Giles. Yeah, look, um, well, yeah, indeed. Well, look, maybe tell us more about that during the podcast. Look. Let's get on to some news of the week. I guess um, the thing, the big thing that did happen in the last week was the switching on of the Tesla big battery in South Australia. Um, David, much awaited event. I, I actually think it's pretty significant because it's um, it is just the first of many battery storage installations um, around Australia, um, depicted with um, uh, unmatched and, and quite predictable scorn by some sections of the media, welcomed um, with open arms by others. Um, very interesting that it was actually used um, to actually address peak demand on the day before it was officially switched on, but um, a big development nonetheless. Sure enough, and uh, you know the, the use of the battery and uh, how it's going to be used was explained in the conversation this week uh, uh, quite well, but I had no doubt in myself that the battery was going to perform extremely well. In the end, batteries are a fairly simple uh, technology. Uh, this one's gone in quickly. They're going to be used for frequency control. What we find in the broader market is people just don't under, only think of batteries as being used for uh, time shifting of energy consumption and don't understand that their main economic role in the market at the moment is for frequency control and ancillary services and you know for momentary uh, bursts of power when, when there are momentary interruptions and they're becoming quite economic there. It's going to be really interesting to see what impact they have on prices as as Tesla sort of becomes um, become more used. And as David says, it's a lot of that frequency control. There'll also be some time shifting. There'll be some use of the energy um, of of the battery during peak demand, and um, we'll see other batteries which can do other clever things like um, grid management and stuff. So this is the difference between batteries at utility scale and batteries in the household. Batteries in the household are used for time shifting of energy. Um, and, and as we know, they're marginally economic at the moment. We haven't seen any price falls really this, in this 12 months in batteries. The Tesla Powerwall 2 came out and set the price. And since then, we've been production constrained, as I read it. And so we haven't seen any price. But at utility scale, these bigger batteries uh, perform in a completely different way. Oh, look, I, th- I reckon they'll do a little bit of time shifting, actually. Some of the one in Lincoln Gap, I think, will do some time shifting. And the one down at Wattle Point Wind Farm will do a little bit of microgrid services and islanding in the case of need. Day, um, Andrew, 
how are your um, how are your uh, members looking at the battery um, with, with hope that this might do something about prices? Um, with hope that this is um, you know a much needed um, moment in the transition. I, I think um, it's. You, you make the point quite rightly that it's an important moment in the transition. And look, the the cost of this particular installation is probably at the top end of the curve, and that will that will improve. And and David's also right. It's not just uh, it, it's it's the additional smoothing and support services in the market that's going to be important for this. So I think most energy consumers would look at this as a positive sign and something that they're going to watch very very closely, and, and potentially something that they could use on their side of the meter sometime in the future. So uh, let's not judge it too hastily. I think uh, it's a very exciting development, something that needs to start to happen a lot more of, and hopefully we'll see a lot more of it in the years to come. Andrew, uh, I could talk, I'd like to ask about the use of uh, demand charges or batteries and so, or demand management, which I hope we can talk about as well mm. um, a little bit. But could I just ask about the uh, association that you're the CEO of? Let me ask, what, what are your objectives over the next uh, couple of years? What, what do you want to achieve? Yeah, that's a very good question. And, and you could probably point at about 100 things, but we're focusing on two or three really important things. And I guess everyone is talking about the need for some consistent, enduring national energy policy uh, as the key way of bringing down prices in the long term, um, bringing in the sorts of technologies at a large scale that we've just talked about with the battery. So I think trying to get a policy that endures rather than having perfect policy, let's get a policy that endures because some policy is better than none. And then we'll start to see some investment flow into the sorts of technologies and a bit more security in the market. So that's one of the key objectives of ours. Uh, certainly also next year will be a very right. hectic year for anyone in the energy game, particularly around the design of the National Energy Guarantee, the security mechanisms around that and the, um, uh, the emissions mechanism as well. So I think we'll need to really look very closely at the design elements of the NEG and make sure we get that right. I guess the third thing that we'll be looking at will be to ensure that uh, the, the rollout of additional transmission and, and network charges is something that is on a downward curve rather than an upward curve. So working very closely with the, with the, uh, the network industry to make sure that uh, we're getting the policy settings right and their pricing settings right so that consumers can, can continue to reinvest in their business and not go out of business. And and do you um, do your members have a consensus on on this? Or I mean, they obviously do their own independent lobbying as well. Uh, how do you sort of um, interface with them? Oh, David, very very consistent and loud um, feedback from members is that they're just looking for some consistency in policy. They're sick of the politics. Um, they're not particularly wanting to blame anyone for the situation that we're in, but they're looking to reward the, the politician or politicians. They just get on with it and getting it to get it fixed. And that's both not only in electricity, but also in, in gas. Uh, I mean, we've got some very large and deep self-inflicted wounds in the gas industry and the gas market, which has seen gas prices quadruple. So I think consumers have, have had enough of the politics. They just need it fixed. Otherwise, we'll start to see some some fairly broad-based economic destruction. 
Now let's get on to demand management. We'll come back to some of the, the, the National Energy Guarantee later on. Um, David did suggest ma demand management. And what was interesting last week was a email coming out with its summer readiness report and just putting together all the different things it's, put, um, it's got in place, emergency reserve, etc., for the um, coming summer period where it looks like to be it's going to be pretty tight in Victoria and in South Australia. What was interesting was that it actually exercised that um, emergency reserve last Thursday. I understand there was an issue at the Longford, Longford gas terminal, which provides gas to various gas generators. There's a big unit at Loyang A out. So we put out a commission of 100 megawatts of demand management. We don't actually know much more than that because it's all a bit of a secret. It's sort of, um, <laughs> it's um, no one tells anything, um, anyone anything. It's sort of commercial in confidence, but um, pretty interesting a couple of days before summer that um, this happened. Um, before switching over to Andrew um, and what his members think about demand management, the opportunities there, David, um, did you have um, any observations? Well, uh, Longford is one of the key uh, failure points in the in the system, of course. Most of the East Coast at the moment depends on Longford. Most of Eastern Australia depends on it for, for their gas needs. And the gas these days is setting the price in electricity. And uh, those of us who are old enough to remember when Longford broke before can remember that it was a bad time in Victoria. So I, this is one of the, there are definitely some pressure points uh, in the system. And that's why I'm expecting uh, Andrew to tell me that a lot of his uh, large clients are doing what they can, uh, either to provide for some demand management or do some self-help. Um, look, certainly large consumers or my members are very interested in demand management. And uh, I guess they prefer to, to control their own demand rather than have demand control for them with an outage. And I think what we've seen, as you rightly point out, Giles, probably a bit of a taster of what's to come over the over the summer. Um, I think consumers are prepared to pay a, play a role. Uh, they're probably looking for the process to put demand response into the market to be a little bit slicker, but that's all a, but a bit of a learning curve for everybody. But there's certainly, uh, I, I have a number of members who are very active in participating in that and being hopefully being rewarded for it as well. Um, so they're prepared to pay, play their role, but I think long-term what they're looking for is more stability on generation and starting to see price come down and starting to see reliability maintained without them needing to do that. But they're certainly prepared to play their role to ensure that we can get through. So Andrew, what are your members thinking about um, demand management? Because presumably um, many of your bigger cust um, or bigger, bigger me members are participating in this scheme. Yes, they are. Um, so a couple of big pulp and paper guys certainly looking so if you've got i think if you've got um a interruptible process or a process where they can derate machinery i think that's where they can you know, you'll see a bit of participation um but it really does depend who they are i mean EUAA is quite diverse we've got everything from shopping centers through to smelters um so there will be um it'd be a, a horses for courses you know someone like a, a shopping center can't participate in that because you know when things are hot, people go to the shopping centre and expect to stay cool. So, Andrew, your, your uh, members of the uh, EU uh, AA must be welcoming this demand management because it probably gives them the opportunity to participate in the market as well. Yes, yeah, certainly um, a number of EU AA members are active participants in demand response. Uh, there are obviously some who can't. It's really a horses for courses. But, uh, yes, yeah, certainly they're, they're looking at this as an opportunity and they're certainly prepared to play their role in demand response and helping to keep the lights on 
during summer. But I have to say, in the longer term, they're probably wanting just to stick to core business. Now, for some, which, which basically means just give me power so I can produce what I'm producing. But um, what it will do, hopefully, is, is uh, create those opportunities and open people's eyes to the opportunities and prospects. And they may become more uh, consistent participants in demand response because certainly, um, certainly opportunities there. I think, and the system of engaging in demand response will improve as we as we learn. So in the engagement with AEMO, for example, that will improve over time as well. So, look, it, it's 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 got possibilities. So I guess Andrew, from that, then um, maybe the estimates that there could be take say ten gigawatts of demand response in the system um, might be slightly overestimating the appetite of the um, the business um, uh, the big business business users to provide it. Look, as it currently stands, that's probably is a bit of an overstatement. But look, uh, you never say never, and I think if there's always a dollar to be made, and provided they can continue to make that dollar and continue to run their business in a way that's profitable for shareholders and I think they'll they'll participate and uh, Andrew I wanted to ask then what about self-help I mean with electricity probably isn't the biggest expense even today for most of these businesses it's obviously gone up but I still doubt for many businesses other than say aluminium it's the difference between whether they make a profit or a loss but I wanted things like corporate PPAs um, and and um, uh, just managing your electricity bill and I guess even for some big users getting their own retailing license must start to come into consideration. Yeah, look, you're absolutely right, David. It's, it is becoming a significant part of, of, of the cost base and it's, I think it's for many consumers, it's on the boardroom table now. So it's a significant issue and they are starting to get a bit more uh, energy conscious and energy aware, if you like. Um, because they do realise that the old way of doing business in energy is probably going by the wayside. And if they really want to get value out of the market, they probably need to participate more deeply in it. So certainly looking at corporate PPAs, certainly looking at different contracting structures, and it's something that at the EUAA we're helping to facilitate because as much as we can do in Canberra on policy and regulation, um, I think consumers also need to take a bit more control of their own destiny and, and a lot are doing that to ensure that they are a bit more resilient in this market so that they can uh, surf through these, these big waves. And what, what can you do to help them? Can you provide them a handbook? Could you provide them a like uh, build your own retailer sort of thing or, or do you just a training course? <laughs> what, do, what do you actually do? Yeah, look, we wouldn't probably go that deeply, but certainly through the relationships that we build, both on, on the supply side with generators, with retailers, with, with network businesses, putting people in contact with, with technology providers and energy auditing and energy efficiency and productivity. So opening up the scope of possibility and to open up their, their, their eyes to those possibilities is really important. And I think in electricity, we've seen that progressively improve over the last 10 years, but particularly with gas uh, now becoming a significant cost base, Cost uh, co part of the cost base. Um, we're starting to see gas productivity come onto the, onto the agenda as well, and that's not as mature as electricity productivity. So I think a lot more work needs to be done in gas productivity and gas efficiency uh, to to help overcome some of these increases in costs as well. There's not much you can do about gas, though. Mostly it in, involves either substituting the gas out or... or... Uh, I guess uh, burning an alternative fuel or putting in expensive capital equipment to use less gas. 
Yeah, that's right. So you, in, in the past, the easy fuel switch was from electricity to gas, but that's no longer available. Um, and people on gas with high prices might think they can switch back to electricity. But uh, if there are efficiencies to be had in in gas processes, then let's let's certainly we need to be looking at that as well. Because at the end of the day, we've got a, a pincer movement going on on energy prices, and we're not going to see three dollar gas come back, and we're not going to see twenty dollars a megawatt hour electricity come back. So consumers, large consumers particularly, need to start to reset their expectations and rethink about how they approach energy in a far more strategic way than they have in the past. We've seen some interesting developments. We've seen Wyala Steel talking about their plans to sort of green, you know, to green the energy that um, that they um, that they can source. We've seen uh, Sun Metals up in Queensland build their own 116 megawatt solar farm, and Telstra doing the same thing, and others presumably doing it as well. Are they taking note? Of, are your members taking note of this? Yes, yeah, certainly. But I, I'd say, Giles, they don't see it as greening. They're just seeing it as the least cost option. Well, that's probably um, not a bad thing anyway. Which, <laughs> and I think that's where it's that's where it's really moved. And, and quite frankly, I don't think consumers care where their power comes from as long as they can rely on it being there when they need it. And it's at a cost that allows them to continue to run their business at a profit. So if, if the best option for them is to build a solar farm or to... Do, to engage in a different contract structure that may involve more risk, but there's a greater reward, then I think that they're looking at that. So um, I think the days have gone where where businesses sit there and think, oh, it's green technology, it's useless. It's just technology. And I think that's a really good place for us to be heading towards because it, at the end of the day, it is just technology. And if it does the job, then let's get it. And particularly if it does the job at a lower price. Absolutely. That- yeah, that's the subject of the National Energy Guarantee, and I'd like to sort of pick up on that. And I'd like to start with David, because David wrote a very strong piece today about the modelling um, prepared by on behalf of the Energy Security Board. Um, now, David and I have sort of talked a lot about modelling, but um, I think he got grumpy enough after sort of looking through it to um, to pen a piece today. And David, um, can you remind listeners um, of what it is that you, you, exactly, you exactly wrote today? Well, of course, Giles, it's very easy in the the, uh, stands. I sit right behind Graham Arnold, who's the coach of Sydney FC. uh, And uh, when the team's not playing well, I give him a bit of advice. Now, he doesn't always take it, uh, but but I'm there to help him out. And I feel it's the same way with the Energy Security Board, you know. They've uh, got modelling from Frontier Economics. Now, you and I know that Frontier Economics modelling produces... outcomes that always seem to be like magic puddings. In this case, what they're saying is that simply by increasing contract levels, uh, in fact, we don't need any new generation hardly beyond what's already on the boards. And electricity prices are going to go back to $40 a megawatt hour in 2020. And then they're going to stay at $50 a megawatt hour uh, right up till 2030. And and, and that's like a magic pudding. But I'm very sceptical. I spoke to two or three consultants I spoke to an energy uh, broker, electricity broker, uh, who's certainly not necessarily green, he's just a broker. Uh, and uh, I spoke to a modeler, and none of them think much of these numbers. And I, you know, the futures market for 2020 is trading at $65. And, and here's Frontier and, and now the Energy Security Board talking about 40. Uh, I'd throw it over to you, Andrew. Uh, Are you selling futures at the moment, buying puts, if I can put it that way, because electricity prices are going back to 40? Uh, No, (laughs) to say, to put it bluntly. Look, uh, quite frankly, we we start to ignore the modelling, and I don't know how you can really model the energy, uh, the neg, when it hasn't actually been designed yet. Um, 
So we're more focused, quite frankly, on what's the design of the policy? Does it work for consumers? Does it provide a, a long-term security for investors? Um, rather than the details of it, because you know, all you're really doing, as you know, are, are modelling a certain set of circumstances. Now, if those circumstances change, and they will, then your modelling is useless. So let's just focus on making sure that we have an investable environment for people who want to invest in technology, who want to reinvest in their business, because at the moment, the market has so much risk in it, and that risk is, is resulting in higher costs for everybody. So we need policy that gets risk out of the market to bring the cost down, rather but, than just mucking around with modelling. When you talk about risk, I mean, what risk is it? I mean, because, because prices are very high at the moment, you don't really foresee a risk that long-term prices will go up from here, do you? I mean, mainly the risk is that they will come down. No, we, we hope that they're at their peak. <laughs> and when you look at the forward curve for Cal 18, you're, sort of, you're still well above $100 a megawatt hour in most jurisdictions, and that's unsustainable. So we think the price, price will come down, but it will only come down to a sustainable level long term if we have an investable market uh, and a and market that people can trust. So, so again, we don't know the details of the NIG, and I guess I'm very sceptical about settling for uh, a policy without thinking about whether it's a good policy. To me, it's like the neg has been forced upon us because, frankly, John Pierce at the AEMC has, has a way that he thinks markets should work and he's prepared to twist everything to make it fit into that way. Whereas I believe around the world, reverse auctions and a little bit more uh, planning frankly, of the amount of new investment and where it occurs is, is going to produce better outcomes. So are you satisfied with the basic concept of the NEG? Look, that's a hard question because you, and you don't want to give an answer either way, quite frankly, because you don't know enough detail about it. Um, look, we, we were comfortable with the Finkel review and, and we're prepared to look at the clean energy target as a way of creating a level of security in the market so people could invest against it. Um, you know, will the emissions guarantee drive new investment in clean tech? Will it re reduce our emissions beyond our Paris commitments? We don't really know because we haven't seen the design. Um, I guess it's telling, though, David, that people are prepared to agree to look at this, even though they don't know the details, simply because they're getting desperate about the level of certainty in the market and they're just sick of 10 years of self-inflicted destruction that, that they are prepared to settle for second or third best because having something that's bankable is better than having nothing that's unbankable well i think we're probably down to fourth best um yeah um, well there you go yes yeah i mean one of the big concerns um notwithstanding the level of the emissions target and whether it actually brings in new investment but is this the way that the contracts could be constructed and if you're relying on retailers to contract um, these obligations, then I guess the big risk would be uh, reinforcing their, their prominence in the market and, in fact, actually probably doing something against competition rather than for it. Is that, is that a significant concern? Oh, Giles, we, we, within 10 minutes of the NEG being released, we picked that up straight away, and that is a key concern, that the, the concentration of market power will potentially um, best more and more with those the three gentiles, let's face it. Um, well, how do, you, how, do you, how do you have a contracting market without investing more power in those gentiles? And, and this, this, is, this is the challenge, isn't it? So they're the ones who hold all the capacity. 
um, look, they've invested and they've made decisions to get themselves there, and and so be it. But as we've said to a number of people, including Kerry Schott, that if people invest to create market power is one thing, but we certainly shouldn't be writing rules into the market that further entrench it. So we should be writing rules into the market that increase competition. Now, hopefully, now the other side of, of that story is that the new technologies will come in and we'll see um, uh, the, the tier two retailers become tier two gen tailors because they'll have to, because they don't want to be beholden to the, the incumbents and they see new technology coming through that could potentially make it quite competitive for them. So there's a lot that we don't know, which makes it very difficult to answer sort of David's question. Very difficult uh, to back I... one way or another. That's right. And can I just point out, if you're AGL or Origin, I'm not sure that you're going to be thrilled uh, if, if Frontier Economics modelling is actually correct. Mm. If your electricity price is going back to $40 and you're a gas generator, I mean, sure, you're, you're, you're going to be selling at peak, not at the average, but it still doesn't sound too flash when the gas price is, you know, $8 delivered or something, and, and that might be a good number. And even if you're a coal generator in New South Wales, uh, you're not necessarily going to be wanting to produce any electricity at 30 and $40 a megawatt hour. I mean, that, that's, those were the levels that caused uh, people to withdraw capacity before. Yeah. Well, look, if, if gas, is, gas is trading at 8 or $9 a gigajoule, that's not going to translate into $40 a megawatt hour electricity price. Well, well, that's what I think, but yeah, I invite you to read the modelling. This is what the ESB has adopted as, it's, as, it, as what it wants to tell Coag Energy Council. Yeah, so, well, look, let's, we hope they're right for, for the sake of consumers. And let's make sure that the um, that actual design delivers it. But look, I, we don't want to be sceptical because we want to be positive in this debate and this discussion and try and get to a better place than where we've been in for the last 10 years. But um, yeah, look, I think we are going forward in good faith to see if we can we can get there. But look, if those if that forty dollars a megawatt hour is a long term number, then fantastic. But uh, yeah, at the moment, it's difficult to see the pathway to get there. Have you found them to be receptive when you raise these issues? Oh, look, definitely, Giles. I mean, we've raised this with Kerry Shot on a number of occasions in in various forums, um, public and otherwise. So, and we always get the same response. Yes, we're very aware of that market power issue. We're very aware of the cost pressures. Um, and we need to make sure that we work hard to get there. And you know, some people will say, look, you just need to trust us. And well, you know, we've trusted you in the past and we haven't ended up in a happy place. So um, forgive us if we don't. Uh, so, but still acting in good faith, uh, we'll continue to try and, and get an outcome that's good for consumers. But also and, uh, you know, in private enterprise, at least in the businesses I used to work in investment banking, which arguably at the sharp end of private enterprise, when people made enough mistakes like this, uh, someone someone ended up taking a few bullets, you know what I mean? And, and, mm. and, and the board would decide enough was enough, time to sack a few people and try a new team. Yep. Yes, <laughs> I think what happens though, David, is as you would know, energy markets are so complex and has, have so many moving parts. And we've seen this spectacle over the last few years. It's not only one politician blaming another one, but it's one sector of the energy sector blaming the other sector. So... But that has to come to an end. And uh, people, as I said earlier on, I don't think consumers care whose fault it was or even why it happened to get to this point. They just desperately need someone to come in and fix it. So this this spectacle of Coag Energy Council uh, ministers sort of coming out of the meeting and, and making these grand statements doesn't fill investors with a lot of confidence and it doesn't fill consumers with a lot of confidence. No, I, I just feel that the whole market needs a redesign and the people who designed the market last time are still running it. And I'm not talking about the politicians. 
Mm. Uh, I'm frankly talking about the AEMC, uh, and I still see that as the heart. They've presided over this whole mess, and this is me saying this, uh, uh, they've presided over this whole mess, and I, I just think it's like a football team, even if you don't want to talk about a, a business, it's like a football team. When the team's not winning, you sack the manager. That might be a great manager, but he still gets sacked. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think we should appoint you coach, David. And look, we're going to have to wrap this up pretty soon. There is one question I'm going to put to you, Andrew, because you've been on both sides now. You've been with the um, renewable energy industry and you're quite prominent there. Now you're on the other flip side with the energy consumers. Looking back at the renewable energy industry from where you're sitting now, what are your observations? What are they doing well and what could they do better? Oh, look, Giles, they're still clearly winning the public debate and, and the, the popularity contest, if you like. And, and I mean, I, I used to lobby on behalf of renewable energy companies and the industry, as you know, and we're always about trying to get the, the market for renewable energy to parity with fossil fuels. And we, we really are starting to get there. And that's that's an exciting thing to see. And you'd have to say that policies like the renewable energy target have done a good job of bringing the cost down. But I think where we're getting to now is that you can't claim to be a big part of the energy industry but not behave like it. So there's probably... With that increased power comes increased responsibility to start to um, interact with the market in a far more in a way that's the market's used to being interacted with. So, and I think I think sensible people in the renewables industry understand that and are, are going forward to deliver projects and a technology suite that delivers, you know, low cost energy, low carbon energy, but also energy that actually interacts with the market. Um, so that's really that's really good to see. But look, like any in industry, there's good players and there's bad players. There are people there for a quick buck and there are people there for the long term. Um, mm. So that's always going to be the case. But I think we're we're seeing the renewables industry going through a bit of um, uh, a growing up phase, and uh, so they need to continue to do that. But look, it's it's a great industry, great technology. Um, and it's it really is the future, and hopefully the price continues to come down. And Andrew, I should just quickly ask you about gas because, as you say, it's been just as big a topic for your members as, as electricity in, in many ways and, and one that's something harder to do something about. Uh, what about AGL's plan to import uh, LNG? Do you see that as providing a new source of competition into the market or what else can be done to increase supply? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there as far as our, our position on LNG importing is that it creates competition. Um, we've, we've said to a number of people that just rebalancing the gas market in Australia won't actually reduce prices substantially because you still have monopoly power sitting with two or three major players. So what you need to do is get not only more gas into the market, but more gas producers who can come to the market independently and create competition. So we're actually supporters of an LNG import strategy. And let's face it, it's probably going to come from Gorgon, um, just float it around on a boat and, and regasify it uh, in Victoria or wherever it, wherever it may be. So we see that as a, a positive thing from a competition point of view, because that's what we really need to see is significantly greater levels of competition in gas. Yes, you don't even have to see a monopoly. We, we are coming to the end, but I mean, it's just the export parity of price versus the import parity. If import parity is lower, then let's go for it. Well, that's right. All the modelling tells us that we should be paying um, net back price for gas, which should be about $7 a gigajoule, but we're not even close to that. So that tells you there's something else going wrong in the Australian gas market that's delivering prices up to $20 a gigajoule. Still? Still. Still. So basically nothing much has changed. Uh, at the margins, I think, and it's probably softened a little bit, but, you know, 
it's not enough. If you are a major gas user and you've got a $300 million gas bill, then it's really starting to hurt. Then you need to see not not improvements at the margin. You need to see wholesale improvements. Hmm. Guys, I'm going to have to wrap it there because we've been um, we probably on time. Um, I do want to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, which are Solar Ray Energy and What Watches, and thank our special guest today, Andrew. Um, really fantastic to have you on and getting your perspective. Anytime, mate. Thank you. I'd agree with that, Andrew. We all need to remember that the big end of town consumes, what, 40% of Australia's electricity, uh, something like that? Yeah, and they employ a lot of people and they make a lot of things that people use in super, buy from supermarkets. So eventually these things start to flow through to the hip pocket of every consumer. Good on you. Thanks, David. Um, not much happening in the next week, I don't think. Um, but um, Well, I think um, we're going to get AGL's Liddell replacement strategy formally announced, and I'm personally looking forward to that. I mean, I think AGL's struck hard, stuck hard to their philosophy. But anyway, we'll, we'll talk more on that. Good on you. Thank you. Um, thank you, all the listeners. Um, please do um, leave us, um, give us some feedback. You can leave a review on iTunes. You can tell everybody else about it. And you can also tune in next time. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solar Ray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.